Over the past couple of months, I have noticed something different about my vision. Every once in a while, when I look at something, uh, my vision will just be a little bit blurry, and I'll have to stop or rub my eyes, kind of look back and refocus on it again. And I know that that's been true for a little while, but I didn't really think too much about it until a couple of weeks ago. I was at the doctor for a physical, and I just asked the doctor to take a quick look, and, and she took a look, and she said, you know, it looks like that your right eye might be a little bit worse than your left. You ought to go get that checked out. And so I did this week. I went to the eye doctor, and I sat down with the eye doctor, and, and the eye doctor ran all the tests. She looked at my eyes. I told her I thought maybe something with the right eye, maybe something with the prescription. And she looked at me, and she said, you know what? Your right eye's always been a little worse than your left, and I'm not sure that I noticed really anything different. I could I'll put you in a little stronger prescription for that right eye, but I just don't know that it will matter that much. Is, is there anything else you can tell me about your vision? Anything else you can tell me about when, it, when you see that it's blurry or when you feel that it's blurry? And so I thought about it for a minute. I thought, you know, well, sometimes at night, sometimes at night I'll be in my bed, the lights will be a little bit dimmer and I'll be reading and sentence will kind of blur out for a minute and I'll have to look back at it again. And, and she says to me, well, how old are you? 38. 38. Okay. Machine switched back around. Click, 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 click. Is this better, this better, this better, this better. You know the drill. And finally she says to me, well, I hate to tell you this, but you need reading glasses. <laughs> to, to which I said, literally verbatim, this is what I said. What? <laughs> I, reading glasses are for old people. I'm 38. Don't you understand? I'm 38. To which she says to me, I know you're just an overachiever. Here's your prescription. <laughs> Now, this is a problem for me. I'm struggling emotionally with this. I, I really am. See, now I have contacts to see far. I have reading glasses to see up close. And my notes are in like 5,000 point font this morning because there's no way I'm wearing my reading glasses in front of you. Look, my, my third grade teacher with the glasses on the tip of her nose. Won't be long till I'm taking Hillary to Luby's for dinner at 4.30. <laughs> Unbelievable. Cart lady comes by like, hey, more coffee? Uh, yeah, but you better make it decaf because I got to be in bed by six. Like, this, <laughs> unbelievable. That's what's coming for all of us. This, I think this story has a point. I hope it does. When we study Luke chapter 21, we have to see near and far. We, we have to see near and far. We, we have to put our context in so that we can see far what, what's coming in the distance when we study Luke chapter 21, we also have to put our reading glasses on to see what's near, what's right up close. In Luke 21, Jesus is a prophet. He is prophesying about the future. He tells his disciples what's coming at Jerusalem. That's near, that's reading glasses. He tells his disciples what's coming at the end of the world. When he returns, that's far. Think contact lenses in my case. So there are near fulfillments and there are far fulfillments to Jesus' prophecy in Luke chapter 21. And I want you to see this because I think it will help us to understand it. It's not too different than the timeline I drew a couple of weeks ago with the Sadducees about the resurrection. It, it is in fact a timeline, only this timeline is from the moment that Jesus says what he does here in Luke 21 until the end of the world as we know it, till he returns again. So we know that Jesus says what he does right outside the temple in Jerusalem, the last week of his life on earth in 33. So that's when Jesus speaks. We know that he says something I mentioned about Jerusalem. 
and he says something about the end. Now, here's what we know about Jerusalem. Because we live now, today, this present age in 2012, we know that what Jesus said about Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. Jesus said that God would judge Jerusalem. Lloyd talked about last week, God would judge Jerusalem for their religious practice, for their self-righteousness, for their religious leadership, and that happens less than 40 years after he says it will happen. I'll unpack that in just a minute. We know something about Jerusalem, it happens. We don't know when the end will come. What we do know about the end is that it culminates in Jesus's return. It culminates in Jesus' second coming, right? Now, here's what's interesting about this text. The things that Jesus says about Jerusalem mirror the things that he says about the end. And the things that Jesus says about the end mirror the things that he says about Jerusalem. So, when Jesus is talking about Jerusalem, he's also talking about the end. And if, in fact, it applies to the end, then it also applies to Jerusalem. So what we could say is that what Jesus says here characterizes this entire period of history until he returns again. We put our reading glasses on and we see Jerusalem and we understand some things about the end. Put our contacts in, we understand the end, and we understand some things about Jerusalem. And that is very, very helpful here because this passage is hard. It's complicated. It's theologically complex. It's cumbersome. It's, it's not written in chronological order. It's not easy to put in chronological order. There's some things, some verses that Jesus is clearly talking about Jerusalem. There are some verses where Jesus is clearly talking about the end. Some verses where Jesus is clearly talking about both. Some verses that it's unclear what Jesus is talking about. And frankly, that's the point. You see, a clear distinction between Jerusalem and the end is not necessary because all that Jesus says about what is to come applies to both. Now, I want to make one more comment here just to tie back to what we did with the Sadducees two weeks ago. Remember, when Jesus was answering the Sadducees' question about life after death, he divided time into two periods. He said there is this age, remember? This age, that's this present age, the age that we live in right now, and there is that age or the age to come. And what he said to the Sadducees about the, age to the com- about the age to come is, whatever you believe about life after death, whatever you believe happens at the end of your life or when Jesus returns again, it affects your eternity, but it also affects how you live today. And that's Jesus's focus in this text. He's focused on the present. There's some things that he wants us to know about what is to come. There's some things that he wants to share about the future. But his primary focus in Luke 21 is on the present. In other words, and this is important, he's far more concerned with how we live with what he does give us to know than he is concerned about giving us everything there is to know. You see, this is where most people miss it. 
Our tendency is to start thinking about the end and is, was that earthquake bigger than the last? And what about Israel? And what about China? And what about Muslim? Not wrong, not wrong to think that, that way, but that's not the primary emphasis here. What Jesus is doing here is not emphasizing the conclusion of history so much as he is emphasizing our faithfulness in what we know about the end today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this. This is all of Luke 21. That's why I took some time to kind of set it up. We're going to break this whole message, Luke chapter 21, into two parts. I'm going to set it up like I have today and then make a couple of observations about Jerusalem, what we can learn from Jerusalem that applies to us today. Lloyd's going to come next week and finish the message. He'll talk about the end and how that applies to us today or what the implications of the end, what Jesus says about the end are for us today. Okay, so we're going to put our reading glasses on, look at Jerusalem today. Lloyd will come next week. We'll put our contacts in and look at the end. And here's what I believe. I believe that no matter how bad your eyesight is, even if you're young and you need reading glasses, that next week we will walk out of here with spiritual vision that is 2020. I do. We'll be able to see near and far and understand what it looks like to be faithful in light of that today. So look at your Bible, Luke chapter 21. I'm going to read today from 5 to 24. You can just keep your seats and follow along with me as I read. While some of them were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see to it that you're not misled for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death and you'll be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Why? Because these are the days of vengeance or judgment, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon you, upon the land, and the wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot 
by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is a sobering passage, is it not? We have to put our reading glasses on, look closely at Jerusalem. When we do that, we remember that what we learn from what Jesus says to his disciples about Jerusalem has implications for us today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make two observations from the text. We'll talk about application along the way, and then Lloyd will pick up where we leave off next week. Here are my two applications from the text. Here's the first. Number one, God is in control. Here's the second. You don't have to be afraid. Pretty simple. Heard those before. Bill, okay, I've got that. I've got it. Well, I think in this passage, they just jump off the page. And I think this. I think when we unpack this text, there will be fresh appeal for God is in control. You don't have to be afraid in your own life. So let's look at the first one. God's in control. When we look at Jerusalem, how do we know that? How do we know that God is in control by what happened at Jerusalem? Simple, Jerusalem happened. What Jesus said would happen in 33 happens in 70. Jesus said will happen happens just as he said it would in 70 AD. There's a Roman leader named Titus. He led the Roman army against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city. They attacked the city. They desolated the city. No stone left unturned. No stone left stacked on top of another. And we know that because they began at the temple and the temple was covered with gold plates. It was covered with precious metals. It was covered with priceless jewels. And the text says votive gifts. Those are gifts from, from other kings and kingdoms to the Jews at Jerusalem that they put on their temple. The Roman army, after they desolated the people, they spent months pillaging and ransacking the stones to mine out all the valuable stuff. No stone left unturned. What Jesus says about Jerusalem is true. What Jesus says about the things leading up to Jerusalem, the signs that will happen prior to the desolation of Jerusalem, those things are true as well. Nation will rise against nation. In 66 AD, there was a Jewish insurrection against their Roman rule. Began a war that ended in 70 AD. Roman historian Tacitus tells us that there was not one, not one person left alive in the city. There are a few that got out when the city was surrounded before it was attacked. There were a few that were taken prisoners of war. But the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that between 500,000 and 1 million people died in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Nation will rise against nation. There were at least two great earthquakes that we know of, one in 61 AD in Laodicea, another two years later in Pompeii. There were great famines that ravaged the land. I could go on and on. The famines were primarily during the reign of Nero and during the reign of Claudius. You see what Jesus foretells, history reveals. What Jesus foretells, history reveals. Why? 
Because God is in control. That's why. Why does God judge Jerusalem? Why does God do that? Well, because Jerusalem rejected his son, the one he sent to save them. So God's chosen nation of Israel from which the Messiah would come rejected him when he came. They murdered him. And because God is just and he is righteous, he cannot allow unrighteousness to stand. Go back to Lloyd's message if you, hear, if you were here last week. When Jesus is crucified on the cross, what happens in the temple? What happens? The veil's torn in two. The veil that separates the holy of holies, the very presence of God, is torn in two. God begins in 33 AD tearing down the temple. God finishes in 70 AD tearing down the temple and the city of Jerusalem. See, ultimately he tore it down stone by stone as an act of his divine judgment and as a sign of the salvation that God had provided in Jesus Christ. Old religious system has come to an end. The temple has been defiled by its religious leadership. The only temple that mattered was the person of Jesus Christ. So God says to these pious, self-righteous, arrogant religious leaders, I'm burning your temple to the ground burning your city to the ground. I'm going to judge your nation. And sure enough, a Roman army comes and ransacks Jerusalem. Why? Because God said he was going to do it. And he is in control. And if that's true here, right? We said this on the beginning. If it's true here, then what's true here? God is in control. See, what Jesus says will happen here will happen, and what Jesus says will happen here, it will happen as well. And a devastating end to an unrighteous and fallen world will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ, the glorious return of God's own son. Why? Because God's in control. Yes, God is just. His judgment is certain, and it is severe but it is only measured, it is only contained by his incredible redemptive grace. God's in control. Look at verse 22 just for a minute. Talks about the vengeance, the judgment that will come, and then says what? So that all the things which are written in this book will be fulfilled. You see, the events of 70 AD show us, they demonstrate that God was then and is still today directing the affairs of the human race. And he will not stop until he accomplishes his promised end. There are no surprises to God's plan. Nothing is amiss here. And nothing will thwart his redemptive purpose to bring salvation to the world because God's in control. That's the first observation. Let's look at the second. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to fear. This is a pretty bold statement that Jesus makes here, isn't it? Jesus says in the text, he says, even though wars come, terrorists, jihad attacks, even though many in the church will be deceived by false messengers and false messages, 
even though there'll be earthquakes, tornadoes and floods and typhoons and hurricanes, even though there will be cancer and back pain and fungal meningitis, even, even though there will be drought and extreme poverty, even though there will be persecution of all kinds, even though there will be hatred and betrayal and rejection and isolation, even though mothers and nursing children will die at the end of the sword, you don't have to be afraid. How can Jesus say that? How can we embrace that in our right mind? How could he say it right here at the beginning that what's true here will, be continu- will continue to be true and will only be more intensely true at the end and then look at us and say, but don't be afraid. He actually says in verse nine, don't be terrified. Oh, that makes me feel better, right? Don't be terrified. What's Jesus saying? How could he say it to his disciples with Jerusalem imminent? How could he say it to us with the end imminent? How could Jesus say that? Here's how. Because this world, this age, is not the end. That's how. You see, this age is only the beginning. When Jesus returns again, it's only the beginning of the age to come. And the age to come is marked by the return of Jesus Christ for those who have placed their trust in him. And so if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus actually says in verse 18, you're not going to perish. You will not die. Well, how could Jesus say that? He just said that some would die. He's talking to a group of disciples who do die on behalf of his name. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that physical life, mere physical existence that is so important to us now is not the end of life. Death does not end relationship with God. He's saying the same thing that he said to the the Sadducees two weeks ago. God is the God of the living. To God, all are living and continue to live. Why? because God raises the dead, remember? And if in fact God raises the dead, then the question for you and I is, will we spend eternity with him or separated from him? And for those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, he's coming back for us that we might spend eternity alive with him. That's that's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to be afraid. Don't have to fear the things of this life because this life is not the end. God will preserve your life. He will preserve your soul beyond physical existence and restore it with a glorified, resurrected body for eternity to come. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9, for whoever wishes to save his life shall what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. I want to make one more comment here about fear. I think Jesus says this here. You don't have to fear in this context when it's like the whole world is in front of us, our whole future is in front of us because he knows that fear hinders our faith in what is to come and it hinders our faithfulness in today. I think that's why Jesus says it right here. When we see war and we see destruction, we see injustice, when we feel pain or isolation or rejection, when we are persecuted, we tend to lose sight of what's true. We forget that God's in control. We forget that this world is not the end. And fear consumes us. 
It lies to us. It keeps us from trusting him. It erodes our faith. And you know, sometimes it can be demonstrative, what we're afraid of. Sometimes it can be really subtle. This has been a difficult week for us, the Wellens family. My daughter, Emma, she um, broke her tibia right below her kneecap in, in three places. She, she can't put weight on it for about six weeks. She's pretty discouraged about that. Tell you what happened in me, take care of her. We get that taken care of. We got great doctor, great help. All that's true. You know what happened kind of after the fact? And that fear just started kind of rising up in me. I'm afraid she's going to do something to it that's going to require surgery. That's afraid of that. I'm afraid that her body, her poor body, she's had eight broken bones in 10 years. I'm I'm just afraid that her poor body is not going to keep up with her passion for competitive athletics. I'm afraid of that. Talk on it. Might not. I'm afraid that it's going to get more difficult before it gets easier for her. That's fear. This week was our 15th wedding anniversary. That was Thursday. I'm afraid of wedding anniversaries. No, that's not the point. (laughs) 15th wedding anniversary. Friday was father-son camp out. I've been at the father-son camp out this weekend. Um, Great things sleeping on the ground. It's all been fun, joy, just total joy. I've enjoyed it. I really have. Um, I'll tell you where the fear crept in this week. The fear crept in about Wednesday when I was studying this and I'm reading pages upon pages about the end and eschatology and the theology, all just to make sure I got my head together around this. And I'm realizing that my preparation for this is taking longer than it normally does. So here's the fear part started being afraid that I wasn't going to meet my wife's expectations on our anniversary, and I wasn't going to meet my son's expectations about the father-son camp out. Just kind of crept up in me. It's subtle. I got afraid that I wasn't going to interpret this text well. It's like it's all coming together. Just, it's little. It's, it's, it's not near as much as some of the things that you're facing right now that you're afraid of. Not near as scary as some of the things that we've just read in the text, but it's fear. And, and so here's what I did. Thursday this week, I I just wrote some things in my phone that are true. And when I felt it just kind of creeping in, that anxiety, that worry, that fear, I just opened my phone and I read God's words to me. It's short. This is what I wrote. Trust me. Endure. Proclaim me in your weakness. Just be faithful in this moment. I am with you. I am in control. I am coming for you. You don't have to be afraid. You see, where fear erodes our faith, God's truth, it restores it. God's truth restores it. And I'll tell you what's true for us. We live in a world that's scary. Way scarier than what I just described. And if God's truth is what restores our faith and our faithfulness, then we don't fake it when we're afraid. We don't act like we're scared. We recognize that we are. We recognize that fear hinders our ability to trust God and we remind ourselves what's true. That's what we do. We ask somebody else to remind us what's true. We open this book and we ask the Spirit of God to remind us what's true about Him. And when we remember God's truth, that God is in fact in control, that we in fact do not have to be afraid, that this world is in fact not the end. When we remember that truth, listen, then fear, persecution, and anything there is to come 
become an opportunity to be faithful. Do you see that? They become an opportunity for us to demonstrate our faithfulness to an ever-present faithful God. What is Jesus concerned about in this passage? He's not near as concerned about what's coming as he is about our faithfulness in light of what's coming. What does he say? Don't be misled by false messengers or false messages. Don't be consumed by fear. Don't give up. And then in verse 13, he just makes his point straight up. Don't miss the opportunity to be faithful. You see, a disciple of Jesus Christ who knows that God's in control and that there is nothing to fear sees persecution as opportunity. Whoa, that throws sin in our gears. Not persecution is travesty. Not persecution is total discouragement. Persecution is opportunity. What does verse 13 say? Opportunity to do what? To testify about what's true. About what's true of Jesus Christ. That he died for my sin. That he was buried in the grave, but because he's God, he rose from the grave. What's true about Jesus? To say what's true about us. My story is this. I was a sinner in desperate need of a savior and my savior died for me and he's changing me from the inside out. And to be true about what is to come. I don't know when, but I can promise you this. Jesus Christ is coming back. You see, it's an opportunity for us to be bold. Why? There's nothing to lose. (laughs) This life is not all there is and eternity is secure. In fact, Jesus says this, he says, in those moments where you just stand in faithfulness, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of fear, I'll give you the words to say. I'll remind you of my words to you. I'll give you the words to say to a friend. I'll give you the words to say to your opposition that will stop them in their tracks. Why? Because they're true. See, I will use your faithfulness to draw people to me. I'll use your faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Gentiles, to finish what I started in Jerusalem, in Israel. I'll use your faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Gentiles, that's the reference in verse 24, to do what? To bring about my end, to bring salvation to the world. Be faithful. Don't fear. Proclaim me. Don't give up. And keep watch because my son is on his way. I want you to take just a minute and consider what the Spirit of God might be speaking to you. How would you take a message like this and apply it in your own life? Is there a place where you're battling God for control? Is there a place where Fear is creeping in and it hinders your ability to be faithful. Might be a moment of repentance for you. Or it might be a prayer that's just a prayer, God, would you give me courage to see opposition or to see persecution as opportunity to be faithful and to be bold. Take just a minute and go before the Lord and then I'll close us out.